Welcome to the Sum of It All Unlearning Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're diving into the book Unlearning, Changing Your Beliefs and Your Classroom with UDL by Allison Posey and Katie Novak. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. So this week, we're diving into Chapter 4, Prioritize Engagement. And it begins with a lovely story about a segue, which I've never written, um, although I've definitely laughed at people who have. I have to probably <laughs> apologize for that. Um, but it reminds me of this idea of like all the times we've planned for something super exciting, like an mm. outing or an adventure for ourselves or something in our classrooms for our students that would be like super exciting. We think we like we've put all this effort into making it really fun, really engaging, yeah, right. only to realize that for some or all of the students, they find it really difficult instead of fun. Has this happened to you? Uh, yes, Audrey. <laughs> I unfortunately can hear myself speaking right now as I'm thinking back to the many times that I said, this is going to be so easy. You know, it's just saying that I'm like, why did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> easy, easy for who, right? <laughs> yeah. I definitely don't recommend paddle boats with little small children telling them it's easy or lots oh, of other things. Like there's a whole <laughs> bunch of things, lessons learned where you're like, this is going to be so much fun. And then you're like, that half an hour cannot end fast enough because it's not fun for any of us. So like, I feel like it's a really good space for us to dive into this idea of um, engagement by thinking about what it means to be able to engage. And the authors take us on a little bit of a journey to that through this idea of cognitive load. Um, and they define that as um, the necessary effort it can take to complete a task. And those that's impacted by both our external and internal factors. Um, it could be impacted by the environment, things around you, it could be impacted by how you feel on the inside. And it's important to note that when it's totally filled, like by distraction or by fear or emotion or something around you being super busy or chaotic, the author suggests that it makes it a lot more difficult to complete tasks and it reduces your flexibility and thinking. So like even in this very moment right now, if you're mm -hmm. driving and listening and traffic just got intense uh, or you're on a walk and listening and someone waved at you, those distractions might mean that making sense of what was just said is a little more difficult. You might be feeling like, wait a second, push that rewind button. What did they just say? I just missed it. Yeah. Great, great examples, Audrey. You know, when I was reading this in the chapter that the portion about emotions really made sense to me, uh, like especially in the teaching and learning of mathematics. Um, the other day I was sharing with some educators that idea of dear math Mm -hmm. um, and how we can write a letter to to math and how adults and students writing that letter actually reveals like these emotions around past math experiences. Um, and those past experiences definitely impact the cognitive load now and for that person's future experiences. So um, there's a lot of definitely dynamic around emotion and mathematics uh, in the moment and, and things that we carry with us. So so. I acknowledge that emotional aspect, but I, but I am wondering and a little curious about the idea in general, because in mathematics, sometimes what we're trying to do is actually increase the cognitive demand of our tasks that uh, students are engaged in. So you know, Audrey, that we've used a, a cognitive demand matrix that's, um, uh, that a couple of researchers, Smith and Stein, put together. And it's like a continuum that goes from measuring tasks from low demand 
to high demand. And the idea behind it is to analyze the type of tasks that we put in front of kids to consider, are we only giving them low demand tasks versus high demand tasks? So it's interesting that in that aspect, uh, we're valuing the idea of increasing cognitive demand to students in mathematics so that they can do mathematics. But then when we're reading about it in the chapter with cognitive load, we're reducing it. So I, I did start to kind of think about those two ideas and how they are juxtaposed. This is super interesting, Mark. You're going to send me on a tangent and I'm only going to go there for a second. <laughs> okay. For a okay. Promise. All seconds. Right. Um, but like what you're making me think about is when we look at the cognitive demand matrix for tasks, we, we've talked about this before, where a lot of the tasks we give in our classrooms hit into those middle two um, yeah. spaces, the procedures mm -hmm. with connections and the procedures yes. without connections. Correct. Yeah. And what you're, what you're saying makes me wonder if we've lowered the cognitive demand of a task in order to meet the fact that students' brains are filled up with other things already. The cognitive load is already somewhat tapped. Instead of looking for ways to reduce the cognitive load, like the experience of what's going on around them in order mm. that we can have the highest possible cognitive demand of a task. Does that make sense? Like we're looking at the situation where we're saying there's only so much brain capacity we have yeah. in any moment or any attention, brain capacity is the wrong word, but attention we can give to any right one thing and so when we look up we're like gosh they're distracted and there's fear about math and there's all this stuff so let's just make the math easier mm. well, what if instead of doing that we kept the math as rigorous as possible but we looked at all the ways to uh, diminish the fear and to diminish mm. the other distractions right, and to allow right. for flexibility i think that's where we're really going here when mm. we talk about this word engagement in the class and i think that's maybe the intent of thinking through this idea of cognitive load with the UDL guidelines um, and how that interplays with each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Audrey. That That's super insightful. Um, you know, you bring up this word engagement. And I have to say, when you when we say the word engagement, when the authors say the word engagement, I just, my brain goes into this sort of like many places of like, that word means a lot of different things to many different people, right? Um, you know, yeah. how do we know our kids are engaged? Uh, how do we measure engagement? Um, you know, like how, how is that something that uh, we can really have a, a definition of even, you know what I mean? Totally. I think this is something that we've he heard people try to measure at different places and times. And I think there's a falseness around like it's, it's a visible thing. Hmm. Um, and that it's, and then we get into like, but I was really engaged in it in my head, but I wasn't making any <laughs> sound or I wasn't saying anything because I was really in my head trying to make sense or whatever that is. So what I, I really think is interesting here is that, you know, the authors are really starting to introduce universal design for learning more. And they say here that UDL challenges to think more profoundly about engagement. And instead of like using it as a fun meter we're thinking instead about these three pieces, which in the UDL guidelines are three of the, the main, oh man, our checkpoints. I hope I got this right. Um, how we design or how we design to recruit student interest, how we foster sustained effort and persistence and how we support self-regulation. Like those are three areas we can really dive into and think about engagement through mm -hmm. that is very different than are they talking or are they not? Are they writing yeah. or are they not? Like, um, and each one of those has, they aren't 
checkpoints because each one of those has checkpoints underneath it where you can think through mm-hmm. how do I design for um, recruiting student interest. And so I think in all of that, you know, the authors are hit the hit the nail on the head when they say one of the most common questions we hear because we hear it too, you and I hear it too, is how do we get a student to engage who doesn't want to engage? And they use the buffet analogy. How do we get them to pick up the fork if they don't want to pick up the fork and start eating? We can't force feed them. And we've heard so many educators say this. um, I can't force them to engage. I can't force them to, I can lead them to water, but I can't force them to drink this idea, right? And the UDL framework offers an approach to that challenge by thinking through it in a different way, by saying like, go through these three components and think through it how am I providing those opportunities for students for the barriers that are in the environment that are surrounding them? How am I thinking about student variability in the moment and the aspects of uh, the cognitive load that are that are being tapped out and rethink that for my students? So, um, you know, even as simple as thinking about, um, you know, some of my students are not going to want to sit and listen to me talk about this. So how do I offer in a, a recording so that students who feel somewhat distracted in the moment by their own personal thoughts, by things happening in the classroom, by, you know, all kinds of things can yeah. rewind and replay. Like there's so many times when someone's sharing directions where I'm like, I want to raise my hand and ask them to re-say it. But the person saying it even says, well, I don't know what I just said. Like, you know, there, <laughs> there's like all those st- spaces. So I think UDL offers us a space to really start thinking about how we rethink engagement in our classes and how we rethink really supporting our students and being fully engaged in our classes. Oh yeah, for sure. And all this is making me think of like, I'm going back through my uh, memories of of the different classes that I had and like, what was I doing instead of that? And Mm -hmm. you know, what I land on is just this whole idea of like during math lessons, I felt like I needed to be an entertainer. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the authors mentioned this idea of a hook at the start of a lesson, a game to play or a point reward system. Mm-hmm. Boy, that really resonates with uh, mm-hmm. teaching math. Um, you know, just the, that whole idea, just a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like at times, like I needed to stand on my head. I needed to get their attention. I needed mm-hmm. to do something like wild and crazy to like get their attention. But versus like what we're talking about today, this idea that authors mention increasing the relevance of a task or an activity. Um, I'm not sure I would have known how to do that uh, back then. And so when I was in the classroom, so I, I really appreciate them bringing that out. And is, is it, is the math task engaging or is it about me being engaging? If we can get the activity to have such a degree of relevance and purpose for our students, um, that's so much better than watching me stand on my head, right? It's so true, Mark. You know, and, you know, when we were talking about this a, a, a couple of days ago, or a little while ago, I think you even mentioned that if we get kids hooked on the fact that they need a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down, there's an increased expectation that I need the sugar. There's a dependency on the sugar, right? Yep. And so when I get to the next teacher, if the next teacher does not offer me the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine yeah, go down, trouble. trouble, what happens to my beliefs of myself as a student and my beliefs about what mathematics is. And so these are all these things that we do as band-aids in the moment that uh, for no fault on anyone, we do these to survive, to make sense. We've all done them. 
Um, we do them to make things work in our class, but the long-term effect of it is we have sugar dependent kids yeah. that at some point in time will have no more access to sugar. Right. Um, and what happens when that 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 leaves and what does that mean their feelings are towards math and their ability to sustain interest in math. So I think the analogy is, is a great one. I appreciate you bringing it up, Mark. Oh, uh, cool. I appreciate you taking it a little further. So our listeners just need to think about sugar when they sugar. leave that, leave the episode today and yeah. have a trigger to, to connect. There you go. That's cool. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we, we started down this road of relevance, so let's go down a little bit further. Um, you know, uh, in our authors on page 41 and 42, you know, they, they, they write a little bit about, you know, students willing to engage in learning when they perceive the material is relevant or authentic to them, that they are safe and comfortable in the environment, and that there are resources to help them get the job done, then they may be more likely to be able to take the steps they need to achieve the goal. I thought that was a great quote that they bring out. Um, it really reminds me of the phrase productive struggle that we've used a bit uh, over the years in mathematics. Um, although I have to say in reflection, I think looking back in, in all the times that I've explored that phrase with educators over the years, I think sometimes a lot of the focus was getting that math task at that sweet spot of cognitive demand. So like we, you know, without really, you know, the task itself, meaning the mathematics. But I'm not sure that I always had attended to the emotional implications from the student end of things or the relevance and authenticity of the task. So I think those things I, I have a much better appreciation of in, in recent times. So I think that that's something that um, I think we have to put further into the mix for sure. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's so much here, Mark, and there's no, I don't think there's an easy answer because I think when the more we realize that our students have variable interests and variable, um, that they will vary in their engagement, like these are things we know to be true. What uh, the authors say, what fires up one student is likely to bore or overwhelm another. Um, but at the core of this, this goes back to us thinking about planning and designing instruction differently. If we keep planning for instruction by saying, well, I'm going to pick this task because it's about soccer and everyone's going to, it's going to hit a lot of kids because a lot of kids like soccer. We're going to be right. okay. Not everyone. Right. So next week I'm going to pick a rock artist, you know, because some of my kids like music, you know, um, we, we can play that games only so long. Right. And if instead we start by designing with variability in mind and we think about what that means to think about from the get go thinking about what it means to have plan for flexibility, what it means to prevent, provide for autonomy for students. Like, like even to the point of like, how do we let, allow students to have flexibility and when they take their breaks or move around their classroom mm -hmm. so that they can continue to engage? Like, let, I probably just, I mean, there's probably gasps if yeah, teachers right. are listening, right? I like, what? Out of their seats? <laughs> like taking breaks? What is this? But like, we know as a, like as learners, there are times when you need to vary your intensity of engagement in something so that you can continue to persevere at it. So I, there's a lot there we have to really start to rethink. And I think that's why this is an important reframing of the work. What is it I have to unlearn so that I can relearn to do this in a way that really thinks about centering the variability of my students first and foremost? Yeah, oh, that's gr great points, Audrey. You know, all this takes me back to 
really the whole focus of the book, right? The whole focus of the book is about unlearning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really appreciate that overarching goal because you and I work with educators on a regular basis. And uh, I feel like part of our job is to try to uh, provide experiences where teachers, other educators can can unlearn something to to move forward towards something that will be more impactful for students. But, you know, it's as we read this chapter, I started thinking like, but what do we do when people are not ready to go through an unlearning cycle? Like they're not ready to unlearn something. And here we are in a professional learning setting. Um, you know, what do we do? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great, it's a great question. So the, the book, the chapter takes a turn here and starts talking about this idea of discrepant events. And they have a, this other phrase, I'd never heard of them called the wait, what moments. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that comes from an, uh, a gentleman named John Mundorf. Um, but it's this, it's when you have these moments of realization that something you believe to be true may not be true. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, like how many times you chip away at a belief until you have that moment of like, oh my gosh, wait, what? That's not true. There is no, that isn't how it works. That's not, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and so I think it's super interesting to think about this idea that we can be really firmly rooted or even entrenched. I think the authors use the word entrenched in our habits and routines, but even so our brains are super, super pliable. And the authors say we can change them in surprisingly short amounts of time, but things like discrepant events can cause us to flip 180 degrees and go from believing something to be true to totally changing our opinion in, in a single experience, right? So we can be entrenched, but we also can be extremely pliable. And I think that's the power of this kind of idea of like, what are these discrepant events and how do we make them happen for us? Yeah, for sure, Audrey. And, and actually, it makes me think of uh, an event for me. Um, you know, we talk a lot about variability, but that's not something that I always had very much experience with. Um, but then I watched that TED Talk by Todd Rose of Myth of Average. And that really was a discrepant event for me. That was one of those things where I can't unsee it now. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I like I, it shifted uh, what I believed about in terms of the students in front of me. And um, it's something that I could take with me from then on. Um, but, you know, what I started thinking about, Audrey, is that that was a discrepant event for me, that video. In fact, I, I use that video quite a bit with educators um, because I, I think I have that belief that it was such a uh, impactful experience for me and, and for others that I've talked to. But, you know, variability exists in that as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as we work with educators, as we work with adults, we can't just make an assumption that the discrepant events that we throw out in our presentations, in our workshops, are going to all hit the people the same way because of that variability in our audience, right? Yeah, I think it's a great point. So I think when if you're sitting in a leadership position and you're thinking about how do I help others unlearn and change, um, I think that there's something there to thinking about how you're describing, Mark, the, the variability of what discrepant events look and sound like for each and every person and planning with that variability. So getting to a place where each one of us has moments where we realize um, that I know I can engage my students. It's not their problem, but it's a it's a flaw in the lesson design is an important space for us to get yeah. to or replace students with teacher learners or, you know, um, and, and whatever, 
whatever the thing is, getting to a space where you can acknowledge that the 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 unlearning needs to happen in order to reframe and re-look at and grow and move forward. And so those discrepant events, they've happened for all kinds of funny, weird spaces on social media. You know, the Yanni and Laurel um, recordings where half the people would hear something and you'd look at them and you'd be like, you're lying to me. You didn't just hear that, did you? And they're like, 100%, you know? Um, or the dress that was gold and white or versus blue and black. They bring those up in the in the book. And there's been others since then. Um, sometimes it's it's having enough of those different things, Mark, that help you realize we don't all see things the same way, right? Yeah. And we experience things differently. Um, and sometimes it's just being willing to say like, okay, it wasn't that. Like that was not the thing that helped someone to see it differently. But there can still be something else, right? And to keep looking for that something else. So so much to unpack here, um, lots of ideas and lots to look forward to in the next chapter of the book. Oh, for sure, Audrey. Yeah, thanks a lot for the conversation. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter five, relight the pilot light to unleash expert learners. Until then, what will you unlearn?